Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. All right, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor. If you're brand new with us, welcome. Um, I know some of you have been invited to this series. If you have questions about faith and the Bible. Uh, so I'm glad you're here. If you leave this series and like, I still don't believe any of it, um, that's awesome. But at least you gave it a shot. Uh, those of you who are longtime followers of Jesus, uh, just looking to connect. One more time, I'm just going to reiterate, cannot wait for tonight at 5. I hope that you will, if you just show up, show up. Um, but the best place to get connected is Next Steps tonight um, at 5 o'clock. So you guys ready to roll into part three? of this series. I love teaching this. This is the little like heads up I've given every week. This is very different um, than most series that I do. And, and part of it was born out of a lot of conversations with people, 20-somethings, but then not just 20-somethings, 50-somethings that have followed Jesus for 30 years and how um, honestly unaware of this story or the story of the Bible they were. And so it really gave me the angst or the passion to want to teach this. So this is very different. If you're like, is this how this dude preaches all the time? No. So you can go back and listen to the podcast. Um, I'm trying to take like seminary level and make it really, really simple and not preach for an hour. And so far, um, I haven't preached for an hour. I don't know if you've understood any of it, but we're in part three. Um, my shot today is to take something really complex and several thousand years of history and get it into 35 minutes. Okay. So bear with me, and uh, we'll do our best, and I'm going to try to make this as clear as I possibly can. So what I've said also in this series is every message builds on um, the previous message. So if you've not been here, I don't say this all the time, but go back, listen to the previous messages, make sure that you sequentially get all four of these weeks, concluding next week, together, because it'll help fill in the gaps in the movie. Otherwise, you'll be a little bit lost, all right? So here's what we've been talking about in this series is a lot of us know the stories in the Bible, but we don't know the stories of the Bible. And it's really important that we understand how we got the Bible. In fact, it's almost as important how we got the Bible as the stuff in the Bible. Because if you don't understand it, the backstory and the fact that the backstory gives incredible insight and context to the story, it's easy to discount the stories in the scripture. And so we've talked all throughout this series about what is the story of the Bible. Now here's the thing that kind of creates a problem for us is how you got your Bible is not how we got the Bible. And I've said this all throughout the series, but if you haven't been here, like I got this at five years old. It was saran wrapped, it was mapped, it was chaptered, it was versed. I got um, my name in it at some point and somebody handed it to me and they were like, this is God's word. You should believe it, you should obey it and you should do what it says. And then they gave it to me and I was like, sure thing. And I never read it. And that's a lot of your stories. Here's God's word, obey it, believe it, even before you read it. And the thing is, is the story of the Bible is very different than how you got your Bible, whether it's on your phone or on a dusty shelf somewhere, or you got it at five at vacation Bible school. And here's the thing, Jesus, and this is just a heads up, didn't write the Bible, but Jesus is the reason that we have the Bible. Yeah. We talked about all throughout this series, and I'll just say it one more time, is the moment Jesus' followers believed that Jesus was not who he said he was, was actually the moment the story of the Bible began. 
Because Jesus, as we've said, positioned himself at the center of his movement and his message, unlike any other world religion. Generally, when a prophet or religion leader dies, you can take their teaching forward to go, they taught a lot of good stuff. You should follow this. We want to get this movement going. That was not the case with Jesus because Jesus said really ridiculous things like, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm not asking you to believe about a teaching of resurrection. I'm telling you I am resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Unlike other religions, I'm not teaching you about a way. I'm telling you I am the way. So that creates a real fundamental problem because when the resurrection and the life and the way, the truth, and the life dies, his movement and his message dies with him. On Easter weekend, as we've said, there was no Jesus followers. There were no Christians There were no heroes. There were a bunch of disillusioned, dismayed, afraid followers who were no longer following, who were hiding and were cowering and denying the fact that they even knew Jesus because in their minds, rightly so, the Jesus movement was over. Put a pin in it. And then three days later, we believe historically, and I think there's overwhelming evidence, Jesus walked out of a grave alive, appeared among 500 people, had breakfast with Jesus' followers on the beach. And that extraordinary moment changed everything where they realized Jesus was who Jesus said he was. He is the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophet. And the fact that he rose from the dead validated everything that he said. And suddenly, these cowards turned into bold, fearless preachers going into the streets of Jerusalem to go, you guys killed the author of life. God raised him from the dead. We've seen him. You should say you're sorry. And we're not afraid of you any longer because our leader rose from the dead. Why should we fear you? And everything began to change. And what you have to understand is without that moment, there would be no the Bible. In fact, that's the thing that secular historians continue to try to figure out. They do not doubt the existence of Jesus. They obviously do not doubt the, the death of Jesus. But because they're smart people, they understand the content of Jesus' message. And they can't understand how Jesus, who is at the center of his message and movement, how he could survive the first century. Yeah. The answer is because he walked out of a grave alive. And then guys like Matthew sat down to record it. And then Mark And then Luke, who investigated and interviewed eyewitnesses, and then John. And the only reason they did that is not because they were writing the Gospel of John. They had no context that there would ever be a Bible. They were simply documenting what happened in history, and they believed that they had to preserve it for future generations. But still, there was no Bible. In fact, maybe surprisingly to you, there was no the Bible as we know it for about 300 years plus years. It didn't exist. And then Paul and his guys left Judea and they began to take the message of Jesus and what he had done to the Gentiles. Now here, I described this a little bit last week, but as as Paul and others left Judea to take this message forward, they would talk to Gentile people and the Gentiles would become enamored with certain Jewish leaders because they're hearing about this message and this movement for the first time and they're believing it. And then as they became enamored with these Jewish leaders, they became enamored with the Jewish sacred text. And then over time, the Gentile Christians began to embrace these texts as scripture. Now here's where it gets a little complicated. The Gentiles, as they're hearing and believing in this message that Yahweh has come, that God is here, that Jesus has done something in history, as they're hearing and believing in this, they embraced the Jewish or the Hebrew scriptures, not as Jewish scripture, but they actually embraced them as Christian scripture. 
I'll tell you why that's important in just a second. But while Gentile church leaders were enamored with the Jewish scripture, here's what you have to understand. They were not enamored with the Jewish religion. In fact, as they met Jewish people and as they were um, kind of... uh, Saul and were introduced to the Jewish text, their interest was not historical and their interest was not cultural. In fact, there was a couple reasons for that real quick, is when the Gentile Christians would hear about all this, when they would embrace the way of Jesus and they would study the Jewish text, there was a couple things that caused them to be at odds with Jewish people. Number one, the temple had been destroyed. And so the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders were trying to figure out how do they practice ancient Judaism without the temple? Like, how does that work? And rabbinic Judaism was born. And then what began to happen is the Jewish people for quite some time were at odds with the Gentiles because the Jewish people and Jewish leaders would actually side with Rome. And so all of these Gentile people would embrace these Jewish texts, but the Jews would come along to go, those aren't your texts. Like, those are our texts. Those are our scriptures. Those are our sacred texts. And they would side with Rome because they were afraid that the Gentiles would mess up their relationship with Rome. And so it created all of this conflict, and it put them at odds. And then the third thing that happened is the Gentile people would look at the Jews to just go, in all due respect, you guys are weird. Like, you, you never invite us over to your house, like, ever. Like, we can't ever hang out. None of your sons will marry our daughters. We have to be separate all the time. And by the way, you have some really weird customs, like the whole circumcision thing we're not getting on board with. And then there's other stuff beside that in terms of ceremonial eating and washing and all this stuff that we just do not understand. It's just weird. So we do not want to embrace your religion. We're just not interested. And so what happens is the Gentiles actually took the sacred Jewish text but they did not take their history and they did not take their culture. They weren't interested in any of that. Instead, the Gentile people, their interest was purely, and I may introduce a new word to some of you, their interest interest was purely Christological. Meaning, they looked at the ancient Jewish text and their only purpose was to find Jesus in the text because they believed that the entire story was about Jesus. So they looked at the ancient Jewish and Hebrew text and they found Jesus everywhere. In fact, (laughs) they found Jesus in places that Jesus was not. And what they did is they began to actually um, separate themselves from the Jewish interpretation of their own scriptures because basically what the Jewish people said was, hey, you guys can't interpret your own scriptures correctly. Because you've had these ancient texts and these prophets for hundreds of years, and you completely missed the Messiah. How did you do that? Like, Jesus is here. Yahweh is here. We believe he's the one that the ancients and the prophets had prophesied about for decades, for hundreds of years. And you guys missed him. So we're not leaning into your interpretation of your own text. We're going to come up with our own interpretation as we look for Jesus. That's why Paul comes along later in the New Testament. He actually speaks to Gentiles to say, you guys got to chill. And you need a little bit of humility and you need to not create unnecessary conflict. But what happened was the Gentiles baptized, Christianized, and they allegorized the Hebrew or the Jewish scripture. And that's really important for you to understand the scope and the story and the narrative of all of this sequentially because what happened is over time, these Gentiles unknowingly downplayed the gritty and epic history of the Hebrew people. An incredible history, 
an incredible story of what God was doing because what you have to understand is this. The entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament that we have so many questions about, there's a lot of weird stuff in there. We don't understand the, con- the context. It was God's redemptive sequential activity in all of history to introduce something new to the world that would change yep. the world. And so you see God, as we looked at last week, come onto the pages of scripture as in Genesis, God the creator. And then a shift happened as God was unfurling his redemptive story to the world where God the creator assumed a new role of God the founder. And what happened was God came with a promise in history after Genesis, after the creation account, after all that had happened, he came with this promise of, I'm gonna found a nation and that nation is going to bless the entire world. And he shows up to a guy by the name of Abraham. You probably know the story. And Abraham has no kids. His wife and himself are very well along in years. In fact, the literal translation in the Hebrew is, Abraham's as old as dirt. And God comes to go, I know you don't think it's gonna happen for you and you're well along and past all of that, but I'm just telling you, God's gonna perform a miracle and Sarah is gonna have a child and eventually your family is gonna produce an entire nation. And through that entire nation, this multicultural and multiracial and international and multi-generational movement of people is going to bless the entire world. History, Abraham, is going to change through you and your elderly wife. And eventually a nation's gonna rise up through you and then that nation is gonna become slaves to a superpower and then God's gonna go on the move again. And God's gonna raise up a guy by the name of Moses and Moses is going to be God's imperfect but chosen instrument. Guy could not get a sentence out of his mouth, but God's like, I'm gonna use you to bring my people out of Egyptian captivity. And, and this is what gives such context for us. God spoke in the language of ancient pharaohs, the only language that they would understand. Violence and power. And God moved through Moses and spoke through Moses to free his people, his chosen nation. And then God goes on the move that through Moses, through this nation to give them a very specific promise that you guys are my chosen people, my chosen nation, and I'm gonna make a covenant with you known as the Sinai covenant. And through that covenant, it basically says this, that if you obey me, you're gonna prosper. And when you don't obey me, there's gonna be consequences. And I don't want you to adopt all of the customs of the Egyptians and the Canaanites. I want you to be a separate people for this specific moment in history because I'm doing something very specific in history. I want people to know what it's like to have a relationship with one God, Yahweh, through you. You guys are gonna be the model for the rest of the world and eventually the rest of the world's gonna be invited in. So follow me, obey me as I set up this little fragile nation to bless the entire world. And he gives them the Sinai covenant that says, obey, blessing. Don't obey, there's gonna be consequences. It's a contractual agreement. And my love is never gonna fail and my promise is gonna be fulfilled no matter what. But I'm just telling you, I want you to show the rest of the world what it's like to have a relationship with God. And so God begins to set the stage. And you may know this, he gives them not 10 commandments, (laughs) there's like 613 laws and traditions and restrictions. Many of them were cultural. Many of them were simply for the structure of a new nation. It wasn't just religious. It was literally, I have a new people that do not know how to operate on their own. 
So I have to help them. In fact, I have to have to help them understand sickness. I have to help them understand just natural stuff that they wouldn't know coming out of Egyptian captivity. And so God sets the stage that through his people and through the Sinai covenant, God was going to do something for the entire world. Now, here's where I wanna stop and pause for just a second. The commandments or the restrictions or the terms and the conditions, all of the stuff that you find through the Sinai covenant in the Old Testament, it has been the basis of un relenting criticism over and over again by so many people because they look at the terms and conditions, the laws and restrictions, and they think, this is ridiculous. This is why you should not take this seriously. This is why this is ancient and archaic. This is why God had anger management issues in the Old Testament that apparently got solved into the New Testament. Like, there's no reason that you should follow this. And they pick apart all of these ancient laws, customs, and restrictions, and then they cherry pick them into our current cultural context and dismiss all of it. In fact, Richard Dawkins, who I respect as a thinker, we just don't agree, says this. He said, Judaism originally a tribal cult of a single, fiercely unpleasant God, morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions with the smell of charred flesh. That's succinct. And here's the thing. Richard Dawkins is completely wrong. You go to Leviticus. Let me just give you two examples of what I'm talking about and try to be as simple as I can. You go to Leviticus, which I don't know if you've ever tried to read through the Bible. This is where it all goes off the rails and you're like, I'm done. If you try to start in the beginning in Genesis and read that way, don't. If you're new to the Bible, start in John, which is a little bit past the halfway point, or start in Matthew. Do not start in Genesis. And Genesis is great. There's great stories. And then you get into the story of Joseph, which is, that's epic. And then you get into all the other stuff and God leading his people out of Egyptian captivity. By the time you get through Genesis X and hit Leviticus, you're like, this is what? Like, what is this? And then you get into numbers and you're like, it's a lot of repeat of Leviticus. And again, like, what? And you just get lost and, and just, but here's what you have to understand about Leviticus. Leviticus was the ta- entire kind of terms and conditions, restrictions and codes and, or in terms of this Sinai covenant, these commandments and God's agreement with his people. And so Leviticus outlines all of that. And so in Leviticus 18, to give you one example, there are 19 sexual prohibitions, which I understand that's one of the big kind of pushbacks of the scriptures. Like, why is God so obsessed with sex? And why does he talk about it? And why does he put all these archaic things out there? And this is another message series. But in most cases, we've misinterpreted a ton of the sexual ethic in the scriptures and and twisted and and tried to move things around and completely, like we have this idea that God didn't create sex, that God is, if I can use this term, not sex positive in terms of I created it, I manufactured it, it's good, I'm a big fan, and he outlines that all throughout scripture. But in Leviticus Leviticus 18, it gives 19 sexual prohibitions that you look at to go, this is my issue with God. This is why I don't follow this. This is why the Old Testament is archaic. This is why I walked away from all of it. But here's what you have to know. There's 19 sexual prohibitions, and these prohibitions were practiced when this was written in Leviticus. The Sinai covenant was handed down. It was practiced by all the surrounding nations, Egypt, Canaan, all of them. And 17, this is just interesting because you probably never looked at this because you have jobs and a life and all of that. But 17 (laughs) of the 19 behaviors prohibited in Leviticus are either illegal or grossly frowned upon today. 
So let me, if you're like, oh, I'm not sure, let me just give you one example. Leviticus 18, six. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. We're on the same page. Like I 100% agree. <laughs> that seems completely reasonable to me that you should not do that. And listen, like when G, this is what's crazy. When Jesus shows up 1,500 years later, the Egyptian monarchy was still marrying their siblings. The Sinai covenant was hundreds of years ahead of its time. It was a couple thousand years ahead of its time. This was revolutionary. This was new. This was, you should stop marrying your relatives. Like, it's not gonna go well for you. In fact, the Sinai Covenant, I would put it in this language, was a moral and civil code that when understood, and this is the problem, when understood in its ancient context, was brilliant. It was altogether different. It was way ahead of its time. And here's what any secular, reputable thinker would tell you. You cannot take and rip ancient context and take it out and make it or parallel it or compare it with modern context, without context. You cannot do that. In fact, what you will find over and over again is that God always accommodated to the capacity of his people in any single generation. I'll give you an example. It's the same way we talk about sex. When you talk to an eight-year-old about sex, you do not use the same language as a 26-year-old medical student, right? You don't lie, but you accommodate to their capacity. And God shows up to work under the culture that he was given in order to begin to unfurl his plan for all of humanity. And he condescends to accommodate to the capacity of that people in those ancient times and in that generation. And it may seem unsophisticated and barbaric to us when we rip it out of context and try to compare it to today. But here's what you have to understand. It was superior in every way to every religious or civil law of the surrounding nations during that time. The Hebrew Sinai covenant was hundreds of years ahead of anything in ancient context. In fact, here's what I would say. The protections afforded to the most vulnerable in the Sinai covenant were nothing short of revolutionary in terms of that ancient context, women and servants and foreigners and children fared far better under the Hebrew law than they did in any of the other surrounding nations. And you gotta ask the question, why? And the question is pretty, pretty simple because the Hebrew people believed what we talk about, talked about last week that God showed up initially as creator God in Genesis not to tell us how he created the heavens and the earth, but to tell us that he created the heavens and the earth and that he, one God in a monotheistic system, one God created the world. And human beings were the pinnacle of his creation, unlike any other nation and any other religious context. They weren't just a part of his creation where you would worship the birds or make a calf a god. They were the pinnacle of God's creation from the very beginning. And he gave them intrinsic value 
value. He gave them intrinsic worth. He gave them unbelievable dignity in a world that did not give them dignity. In fact, among the gods, the human was simply created to serve the lazy gods as slaves. And God came along to go, no, no, no. Human beings are the epicenter of my creation and they are made in my image. And anybody that you are eyeball to eyeball with, red, yellow, black, and white, they are made in my image. They have extraordinary value and worth. They are the pinnacle of everything that I have done in mankind. And the way you treat them is the way that you treat me. And the Hebrew people grabbed a hold of this idea and they didn't worship the creation any longer. They were stewards of creation. But they were God's unique design and manufacture. They were made in his image. They had marks of the heavenly, their heavenly father in them and they believed that they were the pinnacle of it all. And it changed the way they treated people in a barbaric culture where nobody else saw women and foreigners and slaves and children as people. And then Israel decided after God came as creator God and then God switched on the hat of founder God and created a nation through Abraham that eventually was slave and delivered by Moses and then the Sinai covenant was given and then all of a sudden they got to the point in history where Israel decided they wanted to be like all the cool nations and they wanted a king like everybody else had a king and yet God had said I want to be your king. I want to lead you. I want to direct you. I don't want you to be like every other nation but God because God does not stand in the way of our free will and our choices decided, I'm gonna let you have a king. And so Israel got a king. Now here's the thing about ancient context, like kings were horrible. Kings were always a train wreck. It never worked out. Even the good kings were somewhat of a train wreck because kings did a bunch of things that weren't present before Israel decided we need a king. They always raised taxes. They always raised an army and created all kind of conflict. They had all kind of wives and then, a, and then concubines and that got messy and really dramatic. Um, anytime you have a favorite wife, it's not gonna go well. In fact, maybe that's the application for today. If you have a favorite wife, it's not gonna go good for your life. Like that's just, like you should just remember that. And so they, so they would just do all this stuff that just made it an absolute mess. And eventually Israel's third king came along and their third king built this temple. And, and just real quick side note, Israel built a temple unlike any other temple because all of the nations and religions had a temple. And in their temples, they would have whatever their word was for the Holy of Holies, but this most sacred place where there would be a God vault. And in that God vault would be the image of their God or their gods. And so Israel built a temple, but their temple was completely different in their Holy of Holies or their most sacred place. They had a God vault known as the Ark of the Covenant and in fact, one really interesting story kind of off the fly is in 63 AD, Pompey storms the temple, ransacks everything. And his whole goal was he was fascinated about what the Hebrew God looked like. Like, what's the Hebrew God? And they roll into the Holy of Holies and they desecrate and throw everything. And when he gets in there, all he finds is dishes and tables. And they're like, where's your God? And Pompey was so disgusted, he just left everything and rode out of the temple because Israel had no graven image. Israel did not have a God that was an idol that they worshiped, but they created this temple and this temple system. And then eventually God sent the prophets. And the prophets basically were sent by God to speak on behalf of God. And when any of the kings would get out of line, they would confront and call out the kings. 
One of the best examples is David, who is one of the kings of Israel, and he goes off the rails, and basically, I mean, there, there's not full context, but he, he manipulates, uses his power, potentially rapes somebody, ultimately orchestrates murder. The whole thing is a mess, and Nathan comes to David to go, hey, David, let me tell you a little story. He tells him a story, and he's like, that, the person I just told him the story, that's you, and you need to repent. But then every once in a while, the prophets would speak beyond their current historical context. And it wasn't just about the moment, it wasn't just about the king's behavior that was off the rails. They would look to a future day when God was gonna do something through the nation for all the nations. And one of the most powerful examples is the prophet Isaiah, that 600 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, Isaiah begins to write about a future day that nobody had any context for and about this mysterious suffering servant that was gonna come and his suffering was somehow going to produce blessing that was gonna impact the nation and it was gonna impact the entire world and it would be in complete opposition to the temple system. And 600 years before Jesus, Isaiah penned these words that they really could not figure out. In fact, in many cases today, friends that I have that, uh, that are no Jewish priests or grew up in the synagogue system, they, like one friend particularly, they realized that all their years growing up that, that they just skipped from Isaiah 52 to Isaiah 54. They, they never read Isaiah 53 because what in the world is Isaiah 53? And here's what Isaiah writes, that he was despised, a person, and he was rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. But he, it's a person, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And they're like, oh, no, 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 in the temple system, the animals do that. Like our iniquities, our dysfunction, our sin, we bring an animal and that kind of absolves us and we go our way. Like, what are you talking about? The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds were healed. The wounds of a person the wounds of some dude, like what, like what are you talking about? And the Lord has laid on him. No, 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 laid on bulls and goats. Like that's how it works. That's our system. No, 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 laid on him. This is a person. This is personal. God's gonna do something different. It's laid on him, the iniquity of everybody. For he was cut off from the land of the living. Okay, so somehow this person dies. Somehow there's no life in them. Like, again, what are you talking about? For the transgression, end of verse six, of my people, he was punished. And then verse nine, and he was assigned a grave with the wicked. This is not making sense to Hebrew Jewish people. Even in the first century who are reading this. He was assigned to the grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And then verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. What? This person is gonna die and he's gonna come back and somehow he's gonna absolve us of sin and he's gonna do the work of bulls and goats. After he has suffered, he's gonna see the light of life and he'll be satisfied. And by, the, and by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify, just literally meaning make right many. And he will bear, take on the weight, shoulder all of it, their iniquities. They're like, we don't know what you're talking about, Isaiah. Until 600 years later. And over and over again, Israel was reminded that they were a divine means to an end. 
And we talked about this before, being a means to an end is the only thing that gives anything or anybody purpose. If you wanna know what purpose is, purpose is being a means to an end that's bigger than you. And over and over again, Israel was reminded, hey, you guys are a special chosen people and nation, and you are a means to an end of something that God is gonna do. And I'm telling you, the story arc of ancient Hebrews is magnificent. In fact, I would say it this way, God wades into the fray, don't miss this, and plays by the rules of the kingdoms of this world in order to usher in a kingdom, not of this world. And I just want you to hear me for a second because I know you have a lot of questions. To sand off the rough edges of God's behavior in the Old Testament is to miss the mess that God waded into in order to unfurl his redemptive story for all of the world. The story that would end bloody and painfully with the cries of crucify him, crucify him. In fact, our Old Testament is a saga of an ancient people struggling to survive in a world where food was scarce, enemies were real, and death was a minor infection away. And in spite of that, they clung to Yahweh and he in turn clung to his nation careful not to override their freedom with his presence. And I'm just telling you, it is gritty and it is powerful ancient history with a divine purpose. A purpose that would ultimately have you in mind, a purpose that would ultimately have the world in mind, and a purpose that was announced to Abraham and then 2,200 years later, fulfilled when a no-name carpenter finds out that his fiance is pregnant. And in that moment, the fulfillment of Isaiah 600 years before would begin. And the Apostle Paul couldn't have said it better when he wrote this to a group of Jesus followers known as the way in Galatia. And he said in Galatians 4, 4, but when the set time had fully come, meaning when God had everything just right, when the aqueduct system was in play, when the Roman roads were at work, when he knew that the message could travel, when God had set up a nation that became a people that could birth the Messiah, when God had everything just the way he wanted in history and the set time had fully come. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, because that was the context of the culture. The law basically acted as a tutor until the new lawgiver would come and he would introduce something brand new to, to redeem those under the law that we might have and we might receive adoption, become sons and daughters of God. The storyline that is so confusing, I get it, and there's so many questions and I'm still gonna leave you hanging again today. But the storyline of the Old Testament, when you understand it in context, should make us drop to our knees in gratitude. Because there is no need to tidy it up. And there is no need to be God's PR man. 
And there is no need to, sh to shave off the rough edges because the Old Testament is not a spiritual guidebook. It is the story of God preparing the world for a savior and accommodating to the capacity of the ancient context in order to do what he wanted to do in history. So by the second century, the Gentile church had incorporated the Hebrew Bible into Christian worship and they named it the Old Covenant. And then later they would use the Latin, the Old Testament. And here's the reason they did that. It was because they believed it was old because God had replaced his covenant with Israel with a brand new covenant for all people, for all times, to where everybody was invited in and he sealed it with his blood by dying on the cross for the sins of the world and no longer would there be a need for blood of bulls and goats and a temple system and a priest because now we had a, a great high priest whose name was Jesus who invited all of us in and the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom wow. so that now there would be a way to we had access to God and God had set the stage for everything that he had been unfurling for thousands of years. Yahweh, the promised Messiah was here and he had done something different in our midst and now the Old Testament law system was gone and God had decided to relate with his people in a relational manner where we could call God Heavenly Father. A new day, a new covenant was here. But still, know the Bible. Just some Hebrew text, the, the accounts of Jesus' life in these separate documents, and then some correspondence between a very famous church planter and his Gentile congregations. But the stage was set. Hundreds of years in with thousands of followers of Jesus who believe something extraordinary happened in history. Finally, the stage was set for the story, the culmination of the Bible that we'll talk about next week. Would you guys stand with me all over the auditorium? Would you just join me wherever you are at online? And I've said this every week and I wanna say it one more time, as much as you can give some space and just kind of remain where you are for a second just an acknowledgement of what God might be doing in somebody around you. And so would you just pray with me wherever you're at, bow your heads, close your eyes. And I'm well acquainted with a lot of the people who are investigating every week online via unfiltered radio all over the state of Florida and beyond those watching online right now. So even this might seem very religious to you, but I just want you to join me in this moment. And I wanna give some of you an opportunity, as I've said every week to go, I, I have not gotten all my, my questions answered by any means. But God is doing in this moment what he has done for thousands of years to save and to rescue and to redeem his people through his epic narrative of redemption that he has preserved to this moment. And so I wanna give you an opportunity to respond if that's you. And there is no prayer that saves you. There's no special or magic words. It is simply your declaration of your faith and trust in Jesus because that's what the scripture talks about is the gospel. This is the new covenant that God came and he offers a one-sided covenant that is simply based on his performance and his promise, not yours. All you have to do is receive it 
And so Jesus came and he died on a cross for our sin, past, present, and future. He did what bulls and goats couldn't do because they could temporarily cover sin, but they could not release you from shame. And then he walked out of a grave alive. And through that, he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord and believes what I have done on their behalf, it's as simple as, God, we believe that you died for us. We believe that you rose again. And we're inviting you, asking you to forgive us and save us. So I wanna give you that opportunity, wherever you are, to, to just go, I don't know it all, but I know enough that I believe Jesus rose from the grave. And right now I'm placing my faith and trust in him. Pray after me, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, past, present, and future. And I believe that you rose again from the grave. And right now, I'm trusting you to forgive me and save me. One more time online or physically in the house. Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for all of my sin. I believe that you rose again from the grave. And right now, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin and to save me. The scripture says that the moment you make that declaration of trust, you become adopted into sonship in Paul's words. You become a son and daughter of God. And once God adopts you, he will never disinherit you, no matter what your behavior looks like. So wherever you're at, and if you could give me just a little bit of the house lights real quick, with nobody looking around. I just wanna acknowledge again, as we've had dozens and dozens and dozens of people place their faith and trust in Christ online and in the house these last couple of weeks. I, wanna, I just wanna give you a chance not to do anything weird, but for you to acknowledge this is the moment I'm personally placing my faith and trust in Christ. Would you just lift up your hand right now in this moment to go, this is my moment, this is me. I don't understand it all, but I believe and I'm placing my faith and trust in Jesus, yeah. Just for a second, I'm not gonna ask you to do anything other than just lift up your hand so I can acknowledge what God's doing in this moment. Yeah. Let me pray for you, Jesus. I thank you for what you're doing to save, to redeem, to rescue. I wanna encourage those that are online right now, if you've made a decision, we would love to know about, we'd love to send you some information about this new journey to text Centerpoint to 94,000, wherever you are online around the country, Centerpoint to 94,000. If you're in the house today, we want you to take a next step. There's dozens of you, we're praying, would take the next step to go public with your faith through baptism to go, I'm with Jesus. Many of you, next steps would be the best next steps. You can figure out how to get into community and begin to process this with other people. Starting point that's coming up, up soon, which is an environment where you can begin to process and ask your questions about the scripture and about your journey with Jesus. And so I just wanna encourage you to take a step, go find somebody at Connect Point or one of those tents immediately following text in center point to 94,000, show up to next steps tonight, but take a next step in this journey. Jesus, I thank you for what you're doing. Do your thing in this moment as we declare what we just experienced. And we pray this in your incredible name, the name of Jesus. You should be getting really good at this now. Would you put your hands together really loudly and celebrate those who place their faith and trust in Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? 
you can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.